I'm an emeritus fellow in the college, and until 2008, I was a biologist to continuing education. But my scientific background and what I've been doing when I wasn't in continuing education was working on pheromones, um, mostly in insects. But over the last, I guess, 10 or 15 years, um, I got interested in pheromones right the way across the animal kingdom. And I'm interested in everything from worms to people. And uh, what I'm doing at the moment is revising this for its second edition uh, for CUP. And the manuscript is due on the 1st of July, so if I talk quickly, um, that's why. <laughs> um, it's actually a very special time, though, for pheromones. Um, this was a lovely cartoon uh, done for an article um, I had as a commentary in Nature uh, in uh, 2009, which, as I'll explain, was the 50th anniversary of the first pheromone. And what you'll see on this, um, I put the worm on because I was talking in Hull, and there were lots of people who work on pheromones in worms, in the uh, sea, marine worms. But what you'll see across there is all sorts of animals using pheromones, and pretty well any animal you can think of, including humans, either uses pheromones or almost certainly does, even if we don't know what the molecules are. So, by way of plan, um, we'll be going back to 1959 and Bombicol, I'll talk a bit about the variety of pheromones. I want to spend a bit of time talking about how smell works, because that's crucial to the way that pheromones themselves work. And then I want to talk about something that is becoming important now as we try to clarify what are pheromones and what are not. And then we'll go into pheromones and sexual selection. And finally, we'll talk about the relevance to Valentine's Day with human pheromones. So it also goes back to another anniversary um, in 2008-2009, we heard a lot about Charles Darwin with the 200th anniversary of his birth. And his book in 1871, the later book after The Origin, some 20 years later, was The Descent of Man and Selection in Relation to Sex. And you're familiar with peacocks and with uh, red deer stags fighting. But he was very clear that it also included smell. And he included, along with the peacock's tail, some lovely examples, including this one, which was, during the season of love, a musky odour is emitted by the glands of the crocodile and pervades their haunts, so just in the breeding season. And he then, in the book, goes on to describe lots of other examples, with male elephants in the breeding season, pythons that go all musky when they get breeding. He talks about moths, he even talks about a bird that you could smell before you shot it, um, this being the 19th century, and this was somebody writing in from Australia. It was a musk duck. He also talked about goats, and the rank effluvium of the male goat is well known. And those two molecules in the upper right are molecules that are actually found in humans too, and we'll be returning to those. And their common names, as you'll see, caprylic acid and caproic acid, come from the generic name for goats. So he went on to say that the reason these animals have such wonderful smells is that the development of elaborate odour glands in male mammals is intelligible, understandable, through sexual selection if the most odiferous, the smelliest males, are the most successful in winning the females and in leaving offspring to inherit their gradually perfected glands and odours. So if only we had noses to appreciate them. And I, although he didn't call it this way, 
has suggested that this was the success of the smelliest. Now, speaking more generally about sexually selected signals, he suggested that you'd find them in cases where you had elaboration or expression in just one of the sexes, especially in adults in the breeding season, and used primarily or exclusively in mating. So those were the signposts, things like the peacock's tail, that something was sexually selected. And all these odor signals follow that pattern. So there was a very good reason for Darwin suggesting that they might be sexually selected. Now the problem was, for Darwin and everybody else before and after him, was that you couldn't see the things. You couldn't see the pheromones. So Carl von Frisch came up with this idea of Schreckstoff, so alarming substance in fish, uh, if you hurt one of the fish and a little bit of blood went into the water, blood and skin, the other fish would swim away. Nico Tinbergen, uh, who got the Nobel Prize, shared with uh, von Frisch, who was professor of zoology here in Oxford uh, from the late 1940s, and did some lovely work on grading butterflies. And in the final stage of courtships, that's done by smell. But you couldn't put your finger on it because... Surely there were chemicals, but the quantities were so small, they simply couldn't be identified. And we had to wait until 1959 for the first chemical identification. And this was a heroic uh, piece of research, lasting more than 20 years. And it was done by Adolf Budendant, who had won the Nobel Prize for his work on identifying uh, steroid uh, sex hormones. And the key thing was that you had to have a bioassay. And he established the gold standard to find pheromones. So you start with this bioassay, which is this wing fluttering that the males do in response to detecting the pheromone. He isolated, and this is why he worked on the silk moth, because you could grow lots of them, 500,000 female moths, from which he got 12 milligrams, um, a few grains of sugar, of uh, final material. He then synthesized after identifying the molecule that seemed to be doing the work. And then finally, and this was the crucial thing, you do a bioassay to demonstrate that your synthetic molecule is the one that actually is doing the business. And uh, he came up with the name Bombicol um, after the uh, silk moth Bombix. So, in the next door lab, uh, Peter Carlson um, realised that they needed a new word for this new concept, this new kind of thing, and they proposed pheromones in a paper in Nature in January of that year. And it was a chemical signal transmitted between individuals of the same species from two words to transfer, transfer excitement. And I had an email when my commentary came out from somebody, a Greek student, who'd been in the lab that year, and he'd tried to get to the lab to come up with the idea of phororomone, which would mean better Greek, but everybody else in the lab shouted him down because they said they'd never be able to say it. And so pheromone is the word that stuck, and it almost immediately took off. Now, there were some surprises a few years later, um, in 1996, when it was discovered that the largest land mammal shares one of its pheromones with about 140 species of moth. And of course the reason this can happen is that in the moths they're looking for more than one molecule. So one of the things that we have realised since that first discovery in 1959 
is certainly in moths and probably other animals too, they get the specificity by having a number of molecules that have to be there together to make the signal. And of course, male elephants don't detect the tiny amounts that uh, female moths are giving off because the quantities are just too small. Um, elephants are looking for gallons of material. And um, this was actually done by uh, Betts Rasmussen, um, who always worked on large animals. So she worked on elephants, sharks, and anything else that was big, and did fantastic work. So, now, something that they hadn't realised at the time um, was that not everything that they smell is a pheromone. And this is something that's become clearer over the last few years. When dogs meet each other and sniff each other's bottoms, they're getting all sorts of information. Now, some of those things we would call pheromones. Those are the same, whatever the dog. So any male dog will smell roughly the same way. But what they're also sniffing, and when they sniff a lamppost too, is all the individual information that tells them which dog. And there hasn't been a name for those individual smells until relatively recently. And the one that I've proposed this last year is signature mixture. And the same thing happens in ants. There are some things that are anonymous that are true for any member of that species. If you're a queen ant, then you'll always have these particular molecules on your surface. But there are also these highly variable things that allow ants to know which colony they belong to and which ants to fight when they meet outside their territory. So this is actually quite an important thing because if you're looking at a very complex mixture of smells coming from an animal, if what you're looking at is really a signature mixture that is different in every animal, there's no point in trying to find one of these that would be true for the whole species because the whole thing is that they're all different. That's how they can tell each other apart. And some of the confusion about what is a pheromone and what isn't, and some of the wild goose chases have been because people were confusing the two. Now, how do you study smell? Well, if you've got this complex mixture, you have to separate out the molecules. And the thing that revolutionised work, which means that what we could now do with a single moth that took half a million when Gutendant was doing it in 1959 and the 20 years before, is gas chromatography. You put a mixture in at one end, and then as it is sent through the column, which is something like 30 metres long, in the same way as um, separating inks on a piece of paper with water, different molecules, in this case, take different lengths of time to get to the other end, and they show up as peaks on your trace at the other end. Now, to give you an idea of what that looks like, these are some badger bottoms in white and wood from about three miles away from here. And these are two females. Um, and what you'll see is, although you can match up some of the peaks, and each of those peaks corresponds to a particular molecule, there's actually quite a lot of variation both in the amounts in the peaks, but also which peaks are present. And that allows you to distinguish one female badger from another, and they can certainly do that. Incidentally, a human armpit looks very much like a badger bottom in <laughs> terms of its complexity. So we have probably three or four hundred, if not a thousand molecules, depending on where you put the sensitivity, all lying underneath in that wonderful bouquet that makes us human and individual. But that gives you an idea of the problem. Because if you look at this profile, and it goes from large molecules down to small, 
The smells are coming from all sorts of different sources. Some of it's bacteria in your armpits, some of it's what you ate yesterday and this morning. Um, uh, quite a bit of it comes from your genetics, the things that you produce. And within that, some things are pheromones and some things are simply what's you. And so there are some things, these ones, and they can be large molecules with small or just large molecules alone. And these are the same in all individuals of that species. So all males will have those characteristic molecules. And then these signature mixtures are the ones that are different between each animal. So how does smell work? Well, it works in the dark. Um, it works around corners. One of the big things, though, is it's not instantaneous. The molecules actually have to get to your nose. And although noses look very different, basically they all work in the same way. If you look inside a fish nose, which is what this is, but actually our noses look very much the same, at a very high magnification in a scanning electron microscope, you see these olfactory sensory cells, which are actually nerve cells coming out of the brain and exposed to the outside. And on each of these uh, sensory neurons, there are receptor molecules, which I've coloured not to scale, red on this one, and blue on another. So each of these olfactory sensory neurons expresses just one of those receptors. And the odour molecules are interacting with the receptors. And it's all about shape. Now, these are two mirror image molecules, which in biological systems we treat as completely different molecules. So although they're simply mirror images to biological systems, including our nose, they're different. So one of them is the caraway spice smell, and the other is spearmint. And you'd be surprised if your curry's uh, tasted of spearmint, <laughs> and vice versa. Now, the olfactory receptor molecules in the membrane on that sensory neuron are interacting with these different smell molecules. And the really clever thing is the way that they're wired up. So all the ones that are expressing the red receptor all link through to a particular part of the brain and all the blue ones link to another part of the brain. Now why is that important? It's because each kind of smell will stimulate um, different receptors. So if the red receptors get stimulated by square molecules, that sends a message to the brain, we've got smell one. And the blue, uh, the round-shaped molecules will send a message that you've got smell too. And if we have a molecule that has a bit of both within it, a larger molecule that's made up of both, then both kinds of receptors will be stimulated, and they will send a message that this is actually a third smell, smell three. And this gives you a combinatorial code. If it stimulates these three receptors... Sorry, if it stimulates, if this molecule stimulates this receptor, this receptor, and this receptor, it sends a message that a particular molecule is present. And that's true for all these different kinds of molecules. And this is from Axel and Buck's Nobel Prize lecture. And they got it for identifying how the nose works. First in, in, in mammals, but then later it was found that insects really are doing almost exactly the same thing. And what I've concluded is the characteristics of the odour receptors and the way 
that the brain is organised make chemical communication almost inevitable. Now, why is that? We just had red and blue receptors in those cartoons earlier, but in fact, there are about a thousand different kinds of receptors in vertebrates. That's in a mouse. We have about 400 that still work. There are about 100 in insects. They're sensitive to lots of different shapes and characteristics of molecules. And any molecule, whether it's invented by a chemist or something that's coming from a new flower that's evolving, um, is likely to stimulate some receptors. And so the system is pre-adapted and it's ready for any chemical in the environment. So then you get natural and sexual selection working on it and any molecule that's useful that actually gives you more offspring in the next generation will be selected for. So one example. Um, if there's an odour that's given off by mature females just when they're about to lay eggs, just because that's what females do, then any male that can detect this, any mutant male that will smell this, will leave many more offspring. And this seems to have happened in goldfish. So smell works really well underwater. It turns out that goldfish sex pheromones are very like the hormones that are in the female's blood at the time that she's about to lay her eggs. And the scenario is something like, males started out with a few receptors for hormones, and any male that was able to detect the female was about to lay her eggs and got there first would be the one that left his offspring to the next generation. And so you get selection for males to become more sensitive. And a female laying eggs um, is going to have infertile eggs unless she can attract a male. So you then move towards developing a signalling system where the females are actually releasing hormones or some modified molecule to attract males. And there you've got pheromone communication. So that's where we come into sexual selection. Because in many systems, um, there is selection between males um, to actually leave offspring. That it will be the male that gets to the female first, it will be the male that fights most, and so forth. So we're familiar with contests, and this was the red deer stags fighting for the harem. The same thing happens underwater, and this crayfish has had its um, urine stream um, visualised with a fluorescent molecule fluorescein. And what happens in these fights is they squirt urine at each other uh, before grappling and arm wrestling, well, claw wrestling. And the females choose uh, the winning male. And there's lots of uh, courtship happening underwater um, with the females attracted to the male. There are some cases where it's scramble. And this is a case in the goldfish where the fastest male gets to the female and fertilises the eggs. But it also happens in moths. And what you get as a result over millions of years of selection is these males with fabulous antennae that are like molecular sieves that try to catch every molecule of pheromone as he's flying upwind towards the female. And she's giving off a very faint signal, picograms per hour, and the males are competing to find her. So the selection of males for high sensitivity and very fast flight. There's also female choice. And one of the nicest systems... Um, is found underwater. Uh, these are lobsters, um, and the artist's impression is trying to make the smells look like 
um, peacock's tails. But it's also an indicator of male quality um, and good genes. So male mice um, mostly do their things at night and they live in a world dominated by smell. And the males spray their whole territory with urine. And what they're doing is marking their territory. And only the dominant male is allowed to do that. And he's putting out down some small molecules. And what the female does is detect, because there are also some individual molecules along with the small ones that are the same for every male. She's able to detect which male has sprayed most recently, and that must be the dominant, because he's the only one that is actually controlling the whole territory. And she then identifies the smell, and then will choose the male that smells that way. In other words, the dominant male that smells of his marks, and will mate with him. And it turns out that the molecule that reminds her to remember his smell is a protein, it turns out, and they've had a lovely idea of calling that Darcy, um, after Darcy. <laughs> so, one thing that is very different, though, is most of what I've been describing so far, every female would agree on. And there are some cases where it's the other way around, that females are selecting males. Sorry, males are selecting females. But there's one exception to this, and it's about genes that are a good fit. And for this, each female will have a different male that is the best one for her. So there is no agreement. And this is about compatibility. So part of this is avoiding breeding with close kin. So don't uh, choose uh, your brother. And it's about choosing the maximum heterogeneity. You want an animal that's most different for you from you, which tends to mean that your offspring will be most healthy because they will be most immunologically able to resist the diseases that are around at the present time. And olfaction, smell, has a key role in lots of these systems. And this is all about signature mixtures that I mentioned earlier, not pheromones. Because what we're talking about is not something that's true across the species that's always the same. What animals are going for is difference. And a lot of this is done by learning. In fact, pretty well all of it is done by learning. Now, negative familial imprinting is just don't mate with somebody who smells like your brother. And um, you learn your brother's smell, and then you avoid anybody that smells like him. Some of it is done by don't mate with somebody that smells like you. Um, now, mice don't have smelly armpits, but of course humans do. All of these things seem to use learning. And the vertebrate cues seem to use these highly variable major histocompatibility complex smells um, always abbreviated as MHC, and it's part of the immune system. We don't have any idea why um, or how the MHC causes these smells. My own view is that it evolved for the immune system, and because it's something that's different in each of us, and if it, for any reason it causes a difference in our smell, we simply use that as a cue to look for difference. So humans might use MHC to choose their mates, and we'll come on to that in a minute. Now, The Scented Ape um, was the title of a book by David Stoddart in 1990. Um, it had a grey cover, and it never sold as well as The Naked Ape. Um, and it also had too many graphs, so he would have done better to have a, a better agent and a better cover. 
but it was a lovely book, and he was making the point that we are the smelliest of the primates. Now, one of his arguments is that across the primates, we know that smell is very important. So when these mangabees meet each other, they do lots of sniffing of armpits and lots of genital sniffing too at different times of the month. So we know that in primates, generally, smell is important. The problem is, is it important for humans? Now, the first thing you can do, um, and you're probably familiar with some of these experiments, is you can ask people how well they recognise each other. And the classic experiment is to give people a clean T-shirt, you get them to wear it for a day, and then you get other people to sniff the T-shirt without the human in it to see whether they recognise their children better or from uh, distinguishing them from other children. And the answer is, as you probably know, yes. So people are able to recognise by smell, and this is all about signature mixture, it's what varies between individuals. Parents can recognise um, babies, uh, learn the odour of their mother, and vice versa. Fathers too, of course. Grandparents recognise their grandchildren by smell. And siblings also recognise each other by smell. And the memory of these smells can be very long-lasting. And you'll know the idea of the Proustian moment of dipping your biscuit into your tea, the Linden tea from Proust, that is meant to bring back very powerful memories. But somebody's made a very good case recently that if you look at photographs um, of your siblings um, from 50 years ago, that is also incredibly evocative and emotion-bringing. And so there may not be anything terribly special about smell, but it is true that smell does bring back those memories. So then the next question, and this was an inspired experiment in 1995. It had been shown a long time before that mice won't mate with mice that smell like them. So they won't mate with inbred lines that smell just like them. And so 20 years later, somebody thought, well, why don't we try this with humans? And so somebody called Vedicant um, got Swiss students, and I just imagine them as being incredibly clean and sort of wholesome. But anyway, they do smell. And he did the classic clean T-shirt test to ask, would students have a preference for particular other students? And what he did at the same time was tissue-type them as if they were about to swap kidneys. And so he was able to say, were these uh, humans, students, um, going for students who smelt uh, differently in the immune sense from the others. And the answer was yes. Just like the mice, they went for animals, in this case uh, other students, that smelt differently from them. And what that means is they went for people as mates who had been very bad kidney donors, but would have been very good to have children with because they would have had um, more genetically diverse children, and we know that they would be more likely to conceive quickly with uh, somebody who was genetically very different from themselves in these immune uh, genes. So, that was fabulous, and it was followed up, and it was shown that it worked whether you had females choosing male students or male students choosing females. And there was a lovely twist that if the women were on the pill, they then chose male students that actually were very good kidney donors, that smelt very like them. And so one suggestion was that people were falling in love on the pill 
And then when it came to conceiving, they came off the pill and suddenly discovered this foul-smelling man in their bed, and that this would explain European divorce rates. <laughs> and so there was some lovely um, speculation on this um, in the newspapers in 1995-96, but it was also pointed out that the correlations of divorce with a number of televisions is also a very good close fit. So contraceptive rates don't actually fit at all. The problem is, when you go out into a real population, not a group of students wearing T-shirts, and you keep on repeating it, then often the effect is non-significant. And if you go to field data, you discover that most of the field data of who actually marries who, and you tissue type them, it turns out that the story doesn't work. And that's because that's not the only reason you fall in love. It's not just smell. That may be a deal-breaker if they smell awful. But they also have to make you laugh and they have to be pretty and all the other things that cause us to fall in love. Now, where this is leading, so all that I was talking about until now was signature mixtures in humans, and that's about our individual variability. Now, wouldn't it be wonderful if there were um, sex attractant pheromones? And of course, if you Google pheromones, you may have done before coming tonight, you'll discover almost three million hits um, and most of them are these sponsored links, um, which will try and sell you something. Um, I'm pleased to say that in Wikipedia, um, the pheromones in animal behaviour is one of the key references. So I'm delighted. So that, I think, is a good source. Um, these others, less so. Now, armpits um, were described by David Stoddart as being possibly the source of all these pheromones. Now, why was he particularly thinking of the spice box of humans. Well, one reason we'd expect pheromones somewhere is we're mammals. And one of the things about mammals is we smell. And one of the things about sexually selected signals is they're elaborated in only one sex. Now, actually, armpits don't really work. Because although male armpits may smell a little bit more, that's partly a cultural thing um, about washing, um, they may smell slightly differently, but actually I don't think that's even true. Um, there are very few molecules, and they're not that prominent, that are different between male and female armpits. We'll come back to that in a moment, briefly. But what is true is that there's development in adults only. And one of the things that is uh, true of humans is that our smell changes at puberty. So along with all the other secondary, sexual, secondary sexual characteristics... Um, are growing breasts and other things, uh, and all the pubic hair. At the same time, we also have many more glands appearing that change our smell because they secrete new molecules that we don't secrete when we're children. So these are good um, signs of sexual selected characteristics. The problem is, despite Masters and Johnson and a bit of work since, we have no idea how smell uh, works in mating. And that's really the big problem with anything about humans. We know a lot about mice and moths, but very little about humans. So what areas are possible smell sources? And for this, um, the best place to study is actually Icelandic swimming pools. Um, I don't know if you've been to Iceland, but um, in Reykjavik they have this, which is um, a sign that uh, very upfrontly, in a Scandinavian way, tells you which areas to wash. And um, the English translation is observe. Every guest is required to wash thoroughly without a swimsuit. 
before entering the pools, thank you, and they mean it. So they know the smelly areas, and you'll see that armpits are one of those. Um, I think feet is just an extra. Now, why do armpits smell? Well, sweat, when it's secreted, is odourless. And bacteria then break it down to produce the characteristic smells. And what to do about that? Well, one of the things is to um, sniff armpits. And it turns out that shaved armpits do stay sniff-free, or nasty niff-free, for longer. So just as an aside, um, in the 1950s, ten volunteers shaved one armpit and washed both. And other volunteers sniffed both the armpits. And if you put armpit and sniff into Google, an image, you'll come up with all sorts of wonderful um, pictures. So how long before the armpit smell comes back? And um, hours after preparation, um, if it's not shaved, it's there after about four hours. And if you shave it, um, 45 hours later, it's still only up to that level. So one of the take-home messages of this evening's talk is to have less smell in your armpits shaven. And I was persuaded, so for many months didn't, or, the, or did shave. There are places where people actually ask you to leave your armpits unshaven, but there's a specialist. So, is there a human pheromone to make you irresistible? And the answer is no. What you'll find on the web, and in some serious scientific work, is mention of this compound, uh, Androstodionin. And... It's related to testosterone. It is found in some human armpits. It's not, however, found more in the male than the female. And in the largest study to date of armpit smells, uh, done by a friend of mine in Austria, of 200 people in an alpine village, it sort of conjures up muesli and um, alpine things. Um, when they looked on the enormous number of molecules they found in armpits, which was more than um, 10,000, no, yes, almost 10,000 molecules were found in one human, at least, over a 10-week period. Um, when they narrowed it down to the top 400, um, out of that um, top 400, the molecules that were able to distinguish males from females did not include this molecule that was meant to be a human pheromone, um, a putative human pheromone, only found in males. So in other words, it fails that test. And the really important thing is that there's no bioassay-based evidence of the kind that Butendant did with the moths, where you really demonstrate that you've identified a molecule found in humans that you can synthesize that has the same moth-fluttering effect that you got in the moths in humans. So there is no molecule or even combination of molecules that's been identified scientifically that has any effect on humans. And that's a real disappointment. My own feeling is that I'm sure we'll find them in the future. It's just that at the moment we simply don't have them. Now, one thing that you will read about is menstrual synchrony. And this is the idea that women living in close proximity will have their menstrual cycles synchronised. There are two very famous studies, uh, both by Martha McClintock, uh, one in 1971, where she suggested she'd found the effect uh, in her dorm in Wellesley College in the US, and then in 1998, she uh, suggested that you could take um, uh, swabs from women at different stages of their cycle, 
and put them under the noses of other women and in a nice double-blind study demonstrate that their cycles were affected. The problem is, and the debate, is about um, the statistics. And it turns out, as many of you will know, that there is huge, within women, women and between women, variation in the length of cycles. And that makes it very hard to pin down when a cycle has either speeded up or slowed down or coincided with another woman's cycle. And so there's a huge debate about whether or not the studies that claim to have shown such synchrony really have done so. I would like it to be true, so I'm still um, going to say it could be. Um, but as yet, the really crucial thing is no potential molecules have been identified, although I know at least one team is working on that. And of course it will be incredibly important, because that would be another amazing new class of potential um, human contraception. Because if you can affect women's menstrual cycles, then perhaps you can affect other hormone cycles too. So, is it the success of the smelliest? Well, we talked about goats earlier, and Catulus um, was giving advice uh, to some of his friends. And he was saying to Rufus, don't be surprised that no woman's willing, Rufus. They say a fierce goat lives in your armpits, and you'll never get anybody until you get rid of it. But the advice is actually even-handed. Uh, sometime later, Ovid advises women, don't keep a goat in the armpits. And you'll remember that some of those molecules, uh, caprylic acid and caproic acid, are found in human armpits. And there were slightly more uh, of those in the male armpits in, um, in that uh, Austrian study. So, in conclusion, um, pretty well any animal you can think of, including humans, uh, uses pheromones for communication. They evolved by natural selection and sexual selection. There are evolved signals, but there are also these variable signature mixtures. Those are the things that allow us to tell each other apart, whether we're dogs or humans or ants. And humans surely do have pheromones, it's just they haven't been identified yet. And sadly, most of what you read on the internet um, is pure speculation. And um, if you want to read more, there's more there. And thank you very much for coming tonight. Thank you. Thank you.